Who is your worst enemy? Who is your worst enemy? Now, some of you good church-going people hear that question and you think, Oh, pastor, I have no enemies. The Bible tells me not to. Well, let's be honest for a second. After all, Jesus does tell us to love our enemies. He seems to believe that we will certainly have some. So who is your worst enemy? Maybe it changes depending on what day it is or what task you're doing or, or what kind of mood you're in. It could be your co-workers or your neighbors or your parents or even your spouse. The problem with all this, though, is that it exposes just how fickle our hearts could be, doesn't it? How easy it is for us to go back and forth in our emotions and how we feel towards others. Sure, some of us have certainly had strained relationships and some of us have even endured years of sorrow from people who should have brought us joy. Some of us, if we were honest, have spent years making ourselves enemies to others. But the reality is that often our enemies take that place because of something they've done to us or said to us or some way that they've hurt us. But the real question is, is this how it is with God? I'm guessing that most of you, when I ask who your greatest enemy is or was, don't immediately think of God who created the heavens and the earth. And yet, James 4.4 tells us, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And friends, what might God do with his enemies? What might he do with those who would stand against him? How might God handle us, us who have heard his commandments, learned of his ways, seen his glory, and yet walk contrary to him? How might God deal with his enemies? That's really the question that we come to today as we continue our walk through the book of Acts. If you remember, last week we saw the church, still in its infancy, began to spread from Jerusalem, which was kind of the hub of the early church, into Judea and Samaria. It's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. The gospel was continuing to go. Jesus was continuing to draw people into his kingdom. And last week we saw particularly through the ministry of this man named Philip that God was going to grow his kingdom both near and far. Specifically in the city of Samaria where Philip preached the good news. And then sharing with this man from Ethiopia. But why was it happening? Do you remember? What, what was the means God was using to cause the gospel to spread to the unreached peoples? It was persecution. It was hatred. It was Christians coming face to face with their own arrest, torture, and death. And if you remember, it was being led by a single man. A man who had made it his mission to bring an end to this so-called Jesus movement. If you have a Bible, go ahead 
and let's get back into it. Let's turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. If you're new to the Bible, Acts is in the New Testament. You can always use the table of contents to find Acts. There's no shame in using the table of contents. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, Acts 9 is found on page 863. 863. Like I said, if you're new to the Bible, when you get to page 863, just look for that big number 9. That's where we're going to begin reading here in a moment. As always, friends, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we do have some free Bibles we would love to give you today as our gift to you. And they're on the table in the foyer. You can grab one today on your way out. Take it. Begin reading it. Go back maybe and read Acts chapter 9 this week together. All right, friends. Let me invite you to stand once more as I read Acts 9. I'm just going to begin by reading the first nine verses of Acts chapter 9. Hear now the word of the Lord to us today from Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, friends, as as we dive back in to the story, we now see Luke, the doctor who's been recording this entire story of what's happening. He begins now to turn and focus on this one man in particular, this man named Saul. And we're going to see what God is now doing to Saul and through Saul. Saul's been hinted at several times already in the story, but now he's going to begin to take center stage. And we're going to see this in the chapters ahead, that he's going to begin to take center stage more and more. Not as the hero, but initially as the villain, showing that Saul has now been presented as Jesus' greatest enemy. And really, throughout Acts 9, verses 1 through 31, which we'll be looking at today, we find Saul take on three separate roles in this passage. If you want to write these down, they'll kind of guide our time looking at this passage today, your notes there. The first thing we see is the persecutor. We see Saul as the persecutor in verses 1 through 9. And second, we see Saul as the prepared in verses 10 through 19. And finally, we see him as the persecuted, the persecuted in verses 19 through 30. So the persecutor, the prepared, and then the persecuted. My prayer for us this morning as we look at each of these, it's, it's just this. I'm praying over us this week that God would capture our own hearts by his grace. So much so that all we would be about is the work of the kingdom of God. Now, I already read the first nine verses, so let's look at Saul, the persecutor. Look back at verse 1. Let me read it again. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
We are reminded here what we were told last week. That, that this Saul has been ravaging the church. Remember I mentioned last week that word ravaging was something that a wild beast would do to its prey. And Luke here just builds on that concept as he talks about what Saul is doing here and breathing out murderous threats. It's this idea that, that literally everything he's saying and doing is about bringing down this movement of Jesus followers. And Saul's gaining steam in this. We find him here getting permission from the high priest himself in Jerusalem to go to the synagogues in Damascus where he would present these letters stating that he's there to do what he's there to do and to ask for their help as the religious leaders. We're told specifically who he's after here, aren't we? Those who belong to the way. That's a phrase that's been used a couple times in the book of Acts. Those who belong to the way. And it's Luke's way of showing us of what these earlier followers of Jesus saw Jesus as. Or who they saw him to be. That he himself was their way to God. Now if you've grown up in church, you've, you've certainly heard this passage taught or, or preached, I'm sure. I wonder if you've ever stopped here though to ask exactly what Saul is so upset about. Why is he so motivated to kill and destroy the followers of Jesus? Was he just a, an ill-tempered man? Did he, did he need a little bit of anger management? No. What we find here is that Saul, in some way, is acting out of his own faith. In some way, he sees himself, as we read earlier in Philippians, as following God in what he's doing. By reminding us that these earlier followers, earliest followers, were labeled as following the way, Luke reminds us the fundamental belief of Christianity that Saul has such a problem with is that Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh. God the Son, sent by the Father as the only way that God and man could be reconciled. Jesus is the way because Jesus is the Messiah, the one sent by God to save his people. And for Saul, this meant blasphemy. And this meant death. And Saul tells us in different places in the New Testament how he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. How he studied under Gamaliel, who came up back in Acts 5. He was a smart guy who knew the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Which meant he knew passages like Leviticus 24.16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Or Deuteronomy 5.11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so Saul is just taking care of business like a good Jew. He was zealous for God's name. He was zealous for God's glory. And knowing that Jesus certainly wasn't the Messiah, he was squashing out this Jewish rebellion that was bringing shame to the name of Yahweh. And so it's there. With that state of mind, on that mission, that Saul meets Jesus for the first time. Look back at verse 3. We read, Now as he went on his way, it's an interesting little note Luke makes there. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. As I said, this is a passage that many of us are familiar with. But friends, don't miss the beauty of what's just taking place here. Saul is traveling to kill Jesus' people. But before he can get there, Jesus himself steps in. We've said it over and over in this series of sermons that this, is, this, this, this book of the Bible is all about what Jesus is doing through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what do we find here? We find something completely different. There's no apostles and there's no mention of the Holy Spirit yet. Not here, but against the greatest threat the church has faced so far, Jesus himself now enters the picture. Like our true older brother, he steps in front of his people in Damascus and calls Saul out for what he's doing. And Saul suddenly sees this blinding light. He hears this voice from the heavens and he falls to the ground. And Saul says, who are you, Lord? Not Lord as in Yahweh, but Lord as in, as in master. As in saying, I see this bright light. I have fallen to the ground and I'm submitting to whoever you are right now. He says, who are you, Lord? Because he senses the greatness, the strength, and the power of the one who's speaking. Friends, there's, there's no indication here in this text that Jesus is being soft with Saul or, or giving him a gentle rebuke. In fact, he uses his name twice. Saul, Saul. It's this thing that Jesus does throughout the Gospels to really get somebody's attention, to really make a point. And what does Jesus ask him? Don't miss it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We highlight this in week one of our foundations class because it's so fundamental to understanding God's love for the local church. What is Jesus saying here? What is he saying? Well, note what he's not saying. He does not ask Saul why he's persecuting the church. He does not ask Saul why he's persecuting the Christians in Damascus. He does not ask Saul why he is persecuting this group of people out there. But he says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus. Remember, he's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Always alive. Never to die. Never to face sorrow or grief. Pain or suffering ever again. He's in heaven awaiting his return when he will vanquish all his enemies and crush all those oppose him. This is the Jesus who is speaking to Saul. And yet, what does he say? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Friend, if you're here today and you're a Christian, I do not want you to miss the comfort that's found in that question. That Jesus finally and fully identifies with his people. That there are no people of Jesus apart from Jesus. That there is no body without the head. To hurt Jesus' people is to hurt Jesus. To come against Jesus' people is to come against Jesus. To break out against the body of Christ is to break out against Jesus himself. And what, is, what is Jesus doing here for the people in Damascus? Well, he's only fulfilling his promise. His promise to them and, and his promise to us when he calls us to go. 
In Matthew 28, he told us, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he was. Church, take comfort in this today that no matter what affliction we may find ourselves facing, whether on the outside or the inside, this Jesus is truly our defender. He is a refuge and a help for His people. Friend, if, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, we want you to know that for those who come to Jesus, it does not mean that our life becomes a pie in the sky, but it means that we have a refuge and a defender against all of God's enemies. He was here telling his greatest enemy, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but no more. Jesus doesn't even give him a chance to answer the question, right? He doesn't, he doesn't even give Saul a chance to say, well, I was persecuting you because the Old Testament told me. It. No. He tells him to get up and go into the city. Can you imagine the fear that must have overtaken Saul at this point? The tormentor of Jesus' people has now become the tormented. The one who was set on his way has now be, been apprehended by the way himself. Saul has been overtaken. And he goes blinded by the light, led by his companions, a prisoner of the one he had imprisoned for. Truly, we see that the king of this kingdom can deal with all those who oppose him. You may be sitting here today wondering, how do we live in a world where Christianity is growingly not accepted? Where we are consistently ridiculed and laughed at? Where we can hardly have conversations about Jesus in our workplace? Many of us have lost friends and family members over following Jesus and standing upon His Word. What are we to do? Friends, see in His Word today that this is not a new problem. And at the same time, see in His Word that Jesus has no problem dealing with those who oppose Him. So Saul makes his way to Damascus. His blindness reflecting how spiritually blind he actually was believing he was serving God, but actually working against him, needing sight from the one who said that he was the light of the world. His hunger over these three days, reflecting his great need to be spiritually fed and renewed by the very one who said that he was the bread of life. So we see him make his way to Damascus, blinded, hungry, and humbled, which brings us to the second scene of Saul the prepared. Look back at verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may, might regain his sight. Now, we're introduced to someone new here, 
a man named Ananias. Not the same Ananias from before. That guy's still dead. This is a new Ananias. Common name of the day. You see this again. He's going to this house. This guy named Judas. Not Judas Iscariot. He didn't come back from the dead. It's a different Judas. Common name. All right. Everybody's there. So this guy, Ananias, is introduced as a disciple in the city of Damascus. And Jesus comes to him with his great plan. After calling him by name, Jesus tells Ananias to go, giving him a specific street, a specific house, and to look for a specific man. And the task is that Ananias would come and lay his hands on him and restore his sight. Now, put yourself here for a moment, okay? Consider what it would be like if Christians were being hauled off to prison today. Maybe like what's happening in Canada right now with pastors who are simply gathering with their churches. And Jesus came to you and said, The leader of those who are hauling you off was on his way to come and take hold of you. But I've intervened and I want you to go to him and heal him. How would you respond to such a call? Uh, Would would you take back your, here I am, Lord. Can I take that back? I'm not here anymore. I'll see you later. Well, look at verse 13 of what Ananias says. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name, including Ananias. Ananias didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday. He knows how costly this mission really is. But what we also see here is how scandalous the nature of the gospel really is. Ananias is baffled that Jesus would call him to go to this man. This man who has hurt your people so much. This man who has caused so much destruction. Friends, I wonder how many of us have been guilty of these same thoughts. That God would ever save this person or that person. Who, who hates God so much, who speaks so much of the time to try to hurt God's people. Or maybe someone that we know who is pursuing the joys of this world and all it has to offer, that God would save them? Is it even possible? How could He save people who are such enemies to Him? And here we find the beauty of the gospel itself. As if we had all cleaned up ourselves enough to be able to sit here today. That's not grace at all. No, grace. the grace of God is this, that God would redeem His enemies. That God would send Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins, no matter how little or big we may think that they are. As we read this past week in our Bible reading plan in 1 Timothy 1.15, what this Saul would later go on to write with his own pen. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And this is what Jesus' response to Ananias, what makes it so beautiful. Look back at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer For the sake of my name. And what does Jesus now say to this fearful Ananias? He says, you have no idea what I'm about to do through this man. You have no idea what's about to happen. 
Now, how easily Jesus just plucks his greatest enemy up and turns him completely around. Go, for he is a chosen instrument to reach the very ends of the earth. Chosen by who? By Jesus himself. That's what the gospel does, friends. This is what the radical grace of Jesus Christ does. Is that it takes the chief of sinners and spins him in the opposite direction. I've said it before, but, but there are really two ways that God deals with his enemies that we see in Scripture. Two ways that God deals with his enemies. First, as we see over and over throughout Scripture, is that he rains down judgment and leaves a smoldering crater where his enemies once stood, crushing them under his power. That's one way that God deals with his enemies. But the second way, the more beautiful way, that God deals with his enemies is that he turns them into his friends. And this is what the gospel does. This is what Jesus tells Ananias he is now doing with Saul. He didn't just crush the opposition to his movement so that he could just keep on going. No, he takes that very opposition and he turns him into a friend so that he may be a partaker in that mission. So that he may go. By coming and living and dying on the cross to pay for Saul's sin. Now Jesus says, that one, that one who was running so hard against me, is about to run so hard for me. That one who would say, Jesus, you're a fraud and your people are a bunch of blasphemies. That one will now go to the very places that no one has ever heard. Jesus gives away the ending of the story here. Do you catch it? Jesus just kind of slips in the last page. Here, we're still fairly early in the book. We are told that this guy right here is the one who's going to be God's chosen instrument to reach the nations. What does this realization do to Ananias? Verse 17 tells us, So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Don't miss this. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Friends, Ananias goes. He goes and he lays his hands on Saul. And Saul receives the Holy Spirit. And these things like scales fall off of his eyes. Showing that he's been given, given new spiritual sight. That his very heart has been circumcised. And he's baptized. Right then, Luke again showing us through the mention of baptism. That the gospel has gone to a new place. And has done a new thing in this moment. But here's my question. Why does Jesus Jesus do it this way? These are the questions we should ask when we're reading our Bibles. Why why does Jesus do it this way? Why does Luke even include this in his story? He could have just said, that guy saw, that bad guy saw, he he came to follow Jesus and then moved on. Why does Luke include this here? Why does he include Ananias? Why does Jesus want to use this man, Ananias? Saul could have went and taken a bath and the scales would have fallen off and Come up out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes down, it looks like Jesus' baptism. Woo. No. Why Ananias here? 
I think there's a few things at play here, but the biggest one I want to draw out is Ananias' willingness to go and willingness to be faithful. For Ananias, he was ready and willing to be used by the Lord. We see this in his response of, Here I am, Lord. He had his ears open and his heart willing and ready to be about the mission of God, however Jesus desired. He was ready to go. He was ready to be used by God. And then he was faithful. Sure, he struggled with it. He wrestled with the hardness of the thing he was called to do. But then he goes. You know, I heard someone say this past week. That if the devil can't make you bad, he's going to make you busy. I thought about that phrase this morning as I was even reading back over this passage and considering it. I think for many of us that's true. We are so busy doing things that we think we need to do or things we think are important or things we think are going to please God that we're so busy going, 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 or scrolling, 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 or lazying, lazying. You didn't think it took work to be lazy, but it does. We wonder why our lives are in such upheaval and why God isn't doing more in us or through us or around us. We're frustrated. We're heartbroken. We feel useless. And yet we have to ask ourselves the question this text presses. Have we been faithful in the little that God has given us? How can we even hear the voice of God if we aren't in His Word, if we aren't in prayer? Should we even expect God to do mighty things among us if we aren't willing to serve Him in simple obedience. Jesus told us that he who is faithful with little will be given much. And so as we look at Ananias here and his going to help prepare Saul for his mission, for those of us who are walking in idleness, who are neglecting the means of grace that God has given you, who are ignoring the calls that God has placed on your life, like word and prayer, like living in honest transparency of the local church, caring for those things you're responsible for. Take the willingness of Ananias and the hard road that he walked to Straight Street as a correction, as an encouragement to get up and go and be about it. Take the, up the call of God towards faithful obedience. And see what God might do. Let's look back at the text and see what God does here as we see the third thing of the persecuted. Picking up in verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. I'm sorry, the end of verse 19. It's kind of weird. It starts a new paragraph. We start back there. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? Now again, for those familiar with this passage, maybe one of, this may be one of those things that we can kind of graze right over. But don't miss what has just happened here, okay? Remember, this is Saul. He's come to Damascus to destroy the church and to spew his hatred and denounce the blasphemy of the name of Jesus. That's his purpose. That was his purpose for going. 
And what I find so captivating about this is how quickly Saul is now used by Jesus. We're told here that he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. He immediately goes to the public square. This, the synagogue is the place where people would have gathered. Both Jews and we read earlier in Acts, the Christians would gather here. They would gather here for worship. They would gather here for prayer. They would gather here for conversations. And so Saul immediately goes there. He knows where they're at. He doesn't go denouncing Jesus. He now goes proclaiming him as the Son of God. And can you imagine that scene? The scribes and the Pharisees are hanging around the synagogue. They've just finished up teaching. They look out, and here comes Saul. They're like, okay, finally, he's here. You can finally get rid of these Christians who are over here to the side, and they won't shut up, and we can't get them to leave. And they're always talking about this guy, Jesus. We're sick and tired of it. Saul, you're finally here. Arrest him. Saul walks in and says, no, that Jesus, that Jesus that I've been killing people over, that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one who has come to save us. From our sin. Can you imagine the comfort that came to the Christians at Damascus as they heard Saul's conversion? That Jesus, that Jesus we've been believing in, that Jesus stood up for us. He protected us. He stopped this one who was coming to kill us. That's our Jesus. And all of those who had looked for Saul's coming, their stomachs dropped. They think something has gone terribly wrong. Picking up in verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You know what's happening to Saul here? In some ways, we see the essence of discipleship in a few phrases, right? Discipleship is a word we throw around all the time. What does it mean? We've seen over and over the use of this word disciple here in the book of Acts, it simply means a follower of Jesus, a, a lover of Jesus, someone who's devoted their life to him. And this is what Saul's growing in. That's the strengthening he's experiencing. And I don't think the strengthening that, he, that, that Luke's talking about here is, is because he didn't eat for three days and now he's getting stronger and stronger as he's eating the bread, right? No, it's a spiritual strengthening that's happening to Saul. For Saul, certainly been a startling experience with his intense Jewish education. You see, especially as he confounded, right? He proved to the Jews by confounding them, proving that Jesus was the Christ. For Saul, the puzzle pieces are starting to fall into place with this Old Testament that he knows and has memorized, and he's starting to see the glory and the beauty that all that happened in there, Jesus is the fulfillment of it. So he's able to overwhelm the Jewish leaders with his arguments from Scripture. Now, the word Scripture, it's not used here, as we'll see later. But it would be hard to assume any other basis for Saul's proving. Especially since one chapter ago, Philip used the Scriptures to explain to the Ethiopian eunuch how Jesus was the way. And we've seen over and over in Peter's sermons that he has used the Scriptures to explain to the Jewish leaders that Jesus is the way. We see there, though, that this shortening was not a short thing. Verse 23 mentions many days passing. This is what Saul himself tells us in Galatians 1, where he wrote, 
But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal the Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is often a missed point in this passage, but how much time now passes while Saul is in Damascus and Arabia in just, this, in just these few verses? By all accounts, we find Saul learning more and more about Jesus from the Scripture. He spends three years there in Damascus and in Arabia. And Luke just blows through it in one verse. Three years pass as Saul's learning and growing. This is why I like Eugene Peterson's description of discipleship. He calls it a long obedience in the same direction. Some of us struggle with that kind of phrase. We struggle with long obedience. We want to obey right here and now, but when the going gets tough, we, we tend to stop obeying so we don't have long obedience. Some of us have a problem with the in one direction thing. We, we want to take whatever direction seems the most exciting or seems the easiest. But I like that phrase because it gets it at what exactly we see Saul doing here. That in this time of waiting and proclaiming and following Jesus, he is just going and going and going. And, and Luke just grazes over three years. He's there. And so we continue in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. It's, it's like some scene from like a, a spy thriller or like a, a, a blockbuster action movie, right? They're like, okay, he's going to be killed. Let's get him out the wall, right? And they lower him down in this basket. Saul continues, though, to proclaim and to preach that Jesus is, in fact, the very Son of God. And those he had come to persecute, the Christians, are now the very ones who help him. The one who began as the persecutor has now become the persecuted. How quickly they turn on him. The one who had come to kill now becomes the one who has almost killed himself. And friends, we are reminded here that following Jesus is never easy. But that discipleship and following Jesus is hard. I mean, of all the people you think the Jews would have given a slide to, right? They, of all the people you think that the Jews would have been like, oh, all right, man, it's, it's fine, just don't talk about it. No. They turn on him. We find that throughout Saul's life, this is the cross that he bears. Friends, especially if you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, we don't want you to get it twisted. Jesus doesn't equal earthly safety. Jesus doesn't equal personal success and financial gain. Jesus doesn't equal a fresh start where all your previous worries and woes go away. But what Jesus does mean is hope. Sustaining power and being brought into a family that is meant to care for you. That's exactly what we see here as though Saul had once tried to kill now save his life by lowering him down in this basket so that he might escape. And knowing his mission, now after some three years, he makes his way back to the center where it all began, Jerusalem. Picking up in verse 26. 
And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. They hadn't forgotten. It's been a while. They still had forgotten who he was. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. We continue to find that Saul is not received with a hearty hug by the followers of Jesus. They don't immediately extend that right hand of fellowship, do they? Instead, these disciples, even the apostles this time, are hesitant to receive him as a follower of Jesus. They doubt, and they no doubt assume that that he's coming in and he's just saying this so that he can get in there, and then he's going to flip the switch on them and he's going to arrest them all and drag them out, right? Makes sense. It almost brings the story to a full stop. But we're reintroduced to this man, Barnabas, who, like Ananias, steps in to serve Saul and further the mission of proclamation. Now I say reintroduced because this isn't the first time we've heard about Barnabas. It won't be the last. No, it was back in chapter 4 that we met Barnabas for the first time as he sold a field and gave all the money to the apostles to help serve the needs of the church. You'll remember that the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. We find him living out that name again here. For it is Barnabas who encourages the disciples to receive Saul. And much like we do in our own members meetings when we have folks stand up and give testimony of seeing God's grace at work in people's lives before we receive them into membership, Barnabas does a bit of the same thing here. He says, no, I can give testimony. This man really did see the light on the road. He really did meet Jesus. Jesus really did call him and he really did show up in those synagogues in Damascus and start proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Just a side note, it makes me wonder what works of grace we see in one another's lives that we can encourage in this way. If you see God at work in someone's life, let them know. Or better yet, offer thanksgiving to God this evening in our prayer service for it. And so let's see if this story ends in a fairy tale after all. Verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, those are the Greek-speaking Jews, of which Saul would have been one. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. What we find in these closing verses is much the same. That Saul, after his conversion, after being welcomed into the eternal kingdom of God, faces off with his biological brothers over the name under which he comes. We find that the kingdom of God has no room for those who would sit around and do nothing. We find that the kingdom of God has no place for half-hearted men and those of a lukewarm witness. We find that to be captured by Christ is to go all in and be all about it, even if it means coming at odds with the very ones who raised you up. Saul understands this. But friends, we often don't. He understood it because he knew how far off he truly was. He understood it because as he would go on to write near the end of his life to a young pastor, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
But now he's been redeemed and brought into the family of God. So welcomed that they preserve his life. Knowing it means great things. Sending him back to his home in Tarsus. Which brings us to the final verse. Acts 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. We find, as Luke often does throughout the story of Jesus' ongoing mission, that after these trials and dangers, God continues to build His church and grow the church. It's often in the dedication of the people to the mission through hardship that God grows His people. That the way out of the trial is through it. And that the way to grow in grace is to be refined by the fire. So we see that here again. But don't miss the one thing that's new about this summary of Jesus' mission here. Look back at your Bibles. Luke writes that the church everywhere, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, had what? Peace. Why? Why now? Why does he mention this here? Because what began as a war against God's people has now ended in peace. What started as a war from Saul has ended in his salvation. This is the great glory of this passage. It teaches us the radical gospel of Jesus Christ and the radical results that the gospel should bring. So friends, let me ask you again. Who is your greatest enemy? And now, who is your greatest friend? If you have not repented of your sin and submitted to your life to King Jesus, you, like Saul in the beginning of this passage, stand at odds with the God of the universe. As Acts 4.12 told us, there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. But the beauty of the gospel is held out for you today. That through the blood of Jesus, seeing it, embracing it, giving your life to proclaiming it, there is peace held out. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ that enemies like us are made his friends. It's at the cross of Christ that those who once blasphemed God are made to worship him in praise. And for those of you who know it, my challenge is this. Are you about it? Have you taken up the call of Saul here? Shall we follow him as he follows Christ? Shall we live in light of the audacious grace that we have received? Too often we become lazy in our pursuit of God because we have forgotten how deep the Father's love truly is for us. But see it here. Know it here. Proclaim. Prepare to be hated for it. But don't stop. Don't stop. Be faithful in little and much. Seeing that our Jesus sustains us, He defends us, and cares for us. This is the joy of being once an enemy and made into a friend. Let us pray. Father, we do not come lightly before you, but we come knowing we have no reason other than the cross of Christ. That we come boldly because 
Jesus boldly gave his life for us. And so God, I pray even now as we consider the life of Christ given for enemies like us, that you would sustain us, that you would grow our love and our faith in you even in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.